Hi, this is Sean Cahill, and you're listening to the UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank Motley Fool for sponsoring this episode. I've said before on ads that looking after yourself financially gets harder and harder with the cost of everything going up. Being a tight Scotsman, I use every method I can possible to save a little here or make the most of what I have there. Motley Fool is one way that you can definitely look to maximise your income from investments. The age of stock picking is here with towering inflation and elevating interest rates. Sticking your money in a passive market just isn't going to get you what it used to, but it doesn't mean you have to abandon the market. There are still ways to invest for the future. You just need to know where to look, which is where The Motley Fool comes in. The Motley Fool Stock Advisor Service highlights two stocks each and every month for members to add to their portfolios, and it literally is paid to listen to them. Historically, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And listeners of That UFO Podcast can now access Motley Fool Stock Advisor for just $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the list price. What are you waiting for? Visit fool.com slash podcast. That's F-O-O-L dot com slash podcast to start your investing journey today. $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. Hi everyone and welcome back to a special bonus episode of That UFO Podcast. A couple of months ago I spoke to Chief Science Editor, Head Science Writer and I'm going to quote a friend of ours, um, Ryan Sprague, who called him a guy who really loves his warp drives. I've got Christopher Plain back with me on the podcast. Chris, welcome back. Hey Andy, thanks for having me on and Ryan is correct, I do love my warp drives. That is a direct quote. Uh, I'm not going to hold the paper up because I've got some notes on it, but uh, that dude loves his warp drives, Ryan Sprague. So yeah, that is the quote from today, the 3rd of May, as we record this. Listen, Chris, uh, when we spoke a few months ago, you teased an article was coming on the debrief that was going to be directly linked to the Chicago O'Hare UFO incident from 2006. Before we get to the the new article, co-authored by yourself and Micah Hanks, uh, let's just remind the listeners a little bit, if you don't mind, about that event itself and and what's known about it. Yeah, so uh, the reason it was co-authored by Micah and myself is he's the UFO historian at the debrief, so I might have a few facts off here, but my general understanding is, is that in 2006, at a large airport in Chicago, which is the third largest city in the U.S. by population. So it's not a small city by any means. And uh, there, I guess a baggage crew or baggage handlers or somebody working down around the airplanes saw an object over one of the runways. And he described the object as being round or maybe even disc-shaped and massive, like like bigger than airplanes, and just hovering in place over the runway. And as that event evolved, and as it got reported later and got researched later, we found out that there were some other people that saw it. Maybe a pilot that was coming in on another plane saw something hovering in the same spot. Maybe some other crew. There was some research done by a Chicago Tribune writer back at the time, and he reached out and was able to confirm, I think, half a dozen witnesses that more or less saw the same thing, and all people that had nothing to do with each other. So they were completely, uh, other than being there at that time, 
were completely independent witnesses. And what they all described was more or less the same object this first guy described. And then they described something that people that are familiar with, like, for instance, the Calvin photo incident in Scotland, is this shooting straight up into the air that, that the craft at some point or whatever it was, this thing that was hovering there, shot straight up through the clouds. There was a heavy cloud bank and uh, it left a, a perfect hole in the clouds. What, you know, a, a atmospheric scientists refer to as a false streak hole or a false streak hole. And uh, it's something that can happen naturally but uh, and does from time to time happen around airports because of crafts going through them. But in conjunction with the description of the craft, the fact that it was hovering and all of that, uh, that so that's kind of the background of the incident. There were some rumors that there might be a photo. I remember I heard Andy, I, I heard uh, Ryan Sprague do a show on this back when I first met him a few years ago. And uh, they had a tape of a woman who was in the tower, I think, who was talking to one of the yeah. people. And you can hear her saying something to the effect of, I understand the crew has some photos or have taken a photo of it. So those photos have never come to light. And no photos, as far as we know, of the hole in the clouds have come to light. So like a lot of the history of the UFO subject, we have an incredible story told by multiple witnesses, some of which are, are you know, really respectable uh, professional witnesses that would know the difference between a 747 and a flying disc. And uh, they all told of something that pretty much uh, resembles something we're all used to hearing about, those of us that follow the subject, um, that sounded like a, you know, for lack of a better term, a flying saucer, a flying disc, and uh, that shot through the clouds and left a hole in the clouds. There so are, I was uh, going to say, there are some pictures floating about online. None of them have ever been verified as being genuine. So if anyone does see, this is a picture of the Chicago O'Hare UFO. It was November 7th, 2006, 4.15 in the afternoon, broad daylight. The pictures, nothing has ever been verified. That's not to say that maybe one of the pictures is genuine, but no one knows. It's never been said. So it's, it's one of those things that we have to go with right now none of that has been leaked out just in case anyone does see anything. Yeah. And the, uh, the, we'll get into the folks that did the analysis in my article, but uh, one of the things they did was a lot of research and reaching out to people trying to track down if there was anyone anywhere that could authenticate any one of these photos. And there was just nothing to show that, as you said, the handful that are online, either of the hole in the clouds, I, I even think there's a, a, a photo or two of potentially of the object but yeah uh, yeah I, I think none of that i think it's best to err on the uh, the fact that none of those are authentic and just thinking back to that time and you're a tech guy as well chris we know that um 2006 november 2006 camera phones were popular i remember i had one as a kid the picture quality though was it was lacking. If people want to complain about the phone quality in 2023, 2006, it was Pixel City, Population U. Um, so you weren't getting a high-quality picture, were you? You're on your standard camera phone. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I remember, you know, up until and before iPhones, and was that 2008, 2009, somewhere in there, um, I knew many people that had phones with a camera on it that still carried a digital camera, especially if they were on vacation or going somewhere they wanted to shoot photos. Because if you wanted a high quality image, 
you either needed a traditional film camera or a high quality digital camera. The the phone photos were, uh, you know, uh, like a a grainy security uh, film. You know, not quite that bad, but but pretty basic, pretty fundamental. Okay for doing a close up selfie, but not not for shooting something in the air that you would want any detail on. Absolutely. So here we are, 2006, November 7th, like you've said, the crew, um, some pilots reportedly, some workers. Um, I don't know whether any civilians in the airport are rumoured to have seen anything. Is that something that was mentioned? Uh, you know what, again, so I, I hate to, to keep defaulting here. I, I should have read my own article, but uh, that's why I partnered up with Mike on this when I was reached out by the researchers who have this new uh, uh, theory and analysis they wanted to put forward on the incident. I reached out to Mike and said, hey, can you do all the backstory on the Chicago I, I don't think there was, Chris. Honestly, I don't think there was. It's largely always been commented that it was crew and, and baggage and whatnot. So um, that's that's the folks who have talked about it officially. And the main thing is in the article, like you've done the work here with the researchers and Micah, they have done a lot of extensive research in the background to try and dig to see if there was anything else that they could bring up as well so that's totally fair it's a fascinating incident and for me it's just on the cusp of we had cameras but they weren't that great so any images would have to have been from something more than likely handheld uh, and we'll get to of course any of the data that may or may not exist as well and um, so the the article comes how does the article come about because like you say it's a group of physicists physicists easy for me to say um, applied physics around 30 of them have come together to run a scientific eye over this incident. Yeah, so uh, Applied Physics is a group I've written about a couple of times. And uh, I first met them, as you noted, I write about warp drive. And it's one of the, I write about exotic propulsion, alternative propulsion, EM drives, Hall effect thrusters, you name it. If there's something in the, the cutting edge of propulsion or, or uh, uh, aerospace, I try and cover it. So I had actually written... Uh, the the founder, two of the founders of Applied Physics, uh, guys named Johnny Martire, who's an American, and Alexi Bobrick, who I believe is uh, lives in Sweden, um, they partnered on a paper laying out what they called a physical warp drive. And without getting too much into the weeds of warp drive theory and then the stuff that's been laid out in the last 30 years, they think they've solved a lot of the issues that plague Sonny White from NASA, his famous warp drive, or the original Alcubierre warp drive, or any of those, with the, with the caveat that their warp drive design was something that would go just shy of the speed of light. So could get up to 99% the speed of light by warping time and, you know, by warping space, space time, to... Uh, travel to distant stars, but if a star was, uh, you know, five light years away, it would take them five years to get there, you know, hair over that to get there. So, but, uh, so, so they're physicists, and that was a fun paper they did. What they do in a practical sense, I don't know if you're familiar with a think tank called Bell Labs, but it's a very similar, it's a name you will hear from time to time. And basically, government organizations or large financial institutions or venture capitalists that are looking into new technology that they just don't understand. These are basically the way you would hire a law firm to look over the contracts of something that you're thinking about doing. Venture capitalists hire applied physicists, applied physics to, you know, have guys on their team and they have men and women from around the world. I say over 30 is the term I use all the time. They they have some 
affiliate members and other part-time, but their full-time crew is over 30 physicists from around the world. And they look at projects and they look at, uh, you know, a, a VC might come to them and say, hey, there's this whole new cell phone technology that, you know, is 10 times better, a whole new battery technology or whatever that they're thinking about investing in. And this group does all the due diligence for them. And so they will, between their physicists, they'll look at the research, they'll study the, the history, they speak multiple languages. Just as a side note here, the founder, Johnny, told me one of the things that happens to them a lot is they will find venture capitalists who have been pre uh, presented with an investment opportunity in a technology that seems really amazing and really incredible. And they'll find out it was something that was worked on in Russia in the 1990s or in uh, Japan in the early 2000s or somewhere else and ultimately became a dead end, got ruled out, was put on the invention garbage heap, and these con men have come across and are using it to try and raise money. Right. But if you don't speak Japanese or you don't speak Russian, even the best physicists might not find these original uh, you know, pieces of information might not find these yeah. original patents or this original research that this is based on. So they they represent a really unique skill set and a really unique group, of, a set of talents that has some really big money clients, not people I can mention, but they're really successful at what they do. As it turns out, uh, I wrote about their work drive theory a couple of years ago, uh, the two founders, and they became fans of the debrief and followed our writings. And uh, I've written a couple other stories on research they've done, but they reached out to me on this one back when you and I talked about it. I think it was about November or December of last year. And he said, you know, Chris, I know you guys write about UFOs from time to time. And he says, a couple of my physicists and I were sitting around talking about some famous UFO incidents, because this is what we do for fun. As scientists, we try and figure out, like, you know, what what was the tic-tac? What sort of propulsion in the in the Nimitz incident? Or what sort of things would, would these technologies represent? How would they work? And he said, we keep coming back to this Chicago O'Hare incident for a couple of reasons. One, for the shape of the craft. Two, for just the downright credibility of the witnesses that were all seem to be independent of each other. And then three and, and, and foremost, is that hole in the clouds, the fact that the thing shot straight up and left that perfect symmetrical hole in the clouds. And he said to me, he goes, you know, it, it, in warp theory, which is one of the things we work on, that's a well-described phenomenon and something that, you know, it all tripped in our minds of, hey, you know, this, this of the options of what this could be, this could have been a warp craft. Whether or not it was a human craft, I'll talk about later. But yeah, and they do address that actually in the article. Uh, but he said, you know, it occurred to us this could be a warp craft, and I said, okay, well, that's I write about warp drive, so we got into the physics of it. He sent me some of their basic information and everything, and we talked about the pros and cons. You know, when you come into the UFO world with a new story or a new analysis, what everybody would really like is new information, they would like. Yeah. A new photo or a new video or an explanation. And of course, we didn't have any of that. We had an analysis. So we kind of went back and forth on, is this of value? And you know, that O'Hare incident is covered so much. It is talked about so much. And here I have a group of really successful mainstream scientists 
who are willing to engage on the topic. And I thought for that benefit alone, it is worth going ahead and, and taking these guys' analysis, having them put it all down together in, in uh, plain English for me as much as they could. And then uh, I work with Micah and between his knowledge of the history of the incident and my understanding of work drive and work mechanics, uh, we put together their analysis. I had multiple interviews with the researchers involved at various steps along the way. Obviously, uh, multiple uh, interactions with Johnny, the founder on it. And what you see, that, that written piece that came out uh, earlier this week or yesterday or whenever, that is the uh, that is the culmination of a lot of smart work by a lot of smart people trying to analyze something that has very little information but has enough unique qualities about the incident that they, as he said, we keep coming back to it as work theorists and going, it would answer, you know, in, in theoretical physics, things like string theory or dark matter, the reason those ideas exist is because they explain a phenomenon that we see, but we don't understand. So that was their idea was it's just theory, but so is dark matter and so is string theory and so is supersymmetry and M theory and a lot of these other things in physics. So he said as theoretical physicists, Sure, could there have just been a natural hole in the clouds and a bunch of people made up a story about a disk in the sky? Of course. But if you take a circumstance where these people don't seem to know each other, you do seem to have some uh, skilled uh, observers in there, including at least one pilot who can be heard in the tape talking to the people on the tower saying, yeah, we saw it when we were coming in too. We saw the same object. So when you mix in the quality of the witnesses, the, the weather phenomenon, the fact that the temperature wasn't really right for that day, for this hole in the clouds to have happened naturally, that there should have been some sort of artificial object, the movement of the craft as far as shooting straight up vertically, and then the shape of the craft, all of those things are answered if the answer is a warp uh, spacecraft. So it doesn't mean that is the answer, but it means of the proposed answers, that one answers all the questions. It matches all the witness testimony and evidence that is available, including the fact, and not limited to, that it didn't show up on radar, that the FAA and the airport says it doesn't show up on radar. And, and as pointed out in the article, a warp craft would not show up on radar because the way it would bend the radar signal around it, it would just dissipate just like a uh, stealth craft. I'd like to thank Liquid IV for sponsoring this episode. Folks, you've heard me bang on about my own health and fitness journey the last year or so and how it's true that by looking after yourself, you just feel better. Staying hydrated is key to having the energy to get through your daily routine feeling good. That's where Liquid IV is the category winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you may be missing in that daily routine. Eating and drinking healthy can sometimes be boring, but the range of flavours offered by Liquid IV takes care of that, with lemon and lime, pina colada and tropical punch among some of the best, though I'm particularly fond of the strawberry lemonade. Just one stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone, containing five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12 and vitamin C, with three times the electrolytes of premium sports drinks and its non-G. GMO and gluten-free, 
dairy and soya free too. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code THATUFO at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code THATUFO at liquidiv.com. It's interesting timing, Chris, because speaking to Ryan Sprague today and those interviews are going to be out kind of a day or so apart from each other. His new book, Stories from Somewhere in the Skies, give it another plug, um, is about testimony and people's sightings, people's experiences. There's no data behind it. There's no evidence other than people have got in touch with Ryan, including myself, and shared their story. And Ryan puts out there for others to digest and, and analyse in their own time. This is interesting that the Chicago O'Hare incident, as far as we know, like you say, no FAA data, no radar data, no photographic or video evidence is purely testimony. Does it show a bit of a shift in scientific and academic thinking that a group as serious as this are willing to look at an incident based purely on testimony? I think this is why this is so exciting. And I can tell you that I know behind the scenes, uh, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, which is another group of scientists, they've actually saw the article we put out and they actually have reached out to us and we've put them in touch with this group and because they want to coordinate efforts and collaborate uh, because they saw a lot of exciting things in there. Here's what I'd like to do for your viewers without trying to, and listeners without trying to bore them, is Andy, let's go back to 1947 and before, and, and the, the start of military scientific UFO investigations up to and about, uh, say, 1952 or so, where Blue Book just kind of became a, 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 a misinformation campaign to just get people to not pay attention. But in those early years, when you would hear about, and we historically hear about, oh, there was a, a sighting in Michigan, and J. Allen Hynek flew out there and analyzed the scene and looked at data and so forth and would try and determine what people were seeing, before there was stigma, before people were afraid to talk about it, that's exactly what those scientists on uh, Project Sign and even Project Grudge to a smaller degree after that, uh, that's what they were doing. You know, the Twining memo came even before all of that. General Nathan Twining was the first one who got the job. They said, hey, go grab a bunch of scientists and figure out if these reports of disks are real or not. And what they would do was talk to witnesses because they didn't have a lot of film. They didn't have a lot of radar data. They didn't have a lot of forensic data. So they had to rely on the determination of how credible are the witnesses that we're talking to, how independent is their information from each other, and then what does their information sound like? If we add it all up together, can we go, uh, you know, it probably was uh, swap gas, and that would be consistent with the environment and where the angles people saw it from and the color and things like that. That's what scientists have done with UFOs from the very beginning. So we went through the whole period since, you know, my entire lifetime. I was born in 1969, the year that uh, Blue Book shut down. And so my entire lifetime, there's pretty much been this, we don't look at UFO cases from a scientific angle because it'll associate you with supernatural thinking or magical thinking, or it's just not scientific. I can tell you that that has changed so much in the last few years. In my time at the debrief, I just, that's what I do. My job is to talk to scientists. I talk to multiple scientists a week 
from a range of different fields and a range of different topics. And universally, the attitude about UFOs is, I would say, is reset to that original, we don't give a shit about that. We don't, we don't care about the negativity. We don't care about the stigma. We're scientists and we're curious and we want to know. So they are more than willing, like scientists in 1947 and 1948, and, and, and now are finally willing to look at this thing objectively and go, let's just forget about any crazy magical thinking. Let's yeah. set all that aside. What are people saying they saw and what what could that be? What you know, if we could argue all day if David Fravor and Alex Dietrich and their other pilot made up the Tic Tac incident or where are the tapes of that information, we could argue about that forever and we may never know. Or we could say, here's three, three trained observers who are pilots who should be familiar with things in the air. Let's go ahead and assume we're taking them at their word. And for a scientific purpose, let's look at it and see what they saw. So the Chicago O'Hare incident, I think, is a perfect one for scientists to do exactly that. And yeah, this is a, it's just completely different. It's just, I tell people all the time, I followed this topic throughout the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and the attitude of 21st century scientists, space doesn't seem magical the way it did in the 1950s or the 1960s. Yeah. Other dimensions don't seem magical the way they did at that time. Uh, even even the idea of time travel, although it's not one of my favorites, uh, it, it's something that scientists are open to and talk about. So uh, I, I don't think we're stuck in that position anymore. I think we're now in a position where, again, these people make a living off their scientific credentials. Huge venture capitalists and big financial firms hire them to look at real world things and say, is this viable or not? So to have a group like Applied Physics, who's written uh, uh, research papers and, and, and really are accomplished scientists, uh, to, to come forward and say, you know what would be fun is to look at an incident that is popular in the culture that we think really seems to match something specific that we know a lot about, which is warp drive. Well, Chris, time travel is possible and happening right now because while I talk to you, the listener listening to this hasn't even heard it yet. It's not even put out yet. So they are listening to it in the future. So hello to the future. Um, your your point, though, you mentioned earlier about the conclusion. The conclusion is that probability of this being an ET craft is low. While the talk about warp drive is completely serious and the physics and the propulsion that may be behind it, they do stress that it's unlikely given the whole chance of everything, that this is an extraterrestrial craft. However, is that just because we as a species still forget you're a fan of the UFO topic listening to this, and like myself and you, Chris, we've never confirmed a single visitation yet that 100% is out in public. This happened. We were visited once. And say we do, say, say tonight after we record this, they catch a glimpse of something out in space, flying past the moon, and it goes past. We don't even get to see it, okay? So just imagine, hypothetical situation. For some reason, Elon Musk's SpaceX is launching up and it catches on camera proper ET-looking craft. And wow, the world goes mad. We've got confirmed existence. We are not alone. Does that then force every scientist 
to go back to every single incident and look and go, actually, do we now have to run the ETI over this and look at it in a totally different way? Well, so I think this is already happening. So this is this is one of my favorite things that's happening in science about this topic. And I think exactly what you're saying is is what is bound to happen. I tell people this all the time. Say we, uh, forget about a, a UFO. Say we caught uh, evidence of a civilization on another planet with a telescope. Say James Webb looks at a planet and looks at pollution in the atmosphere of that planet, looks at light signatures or EM signatures, and they go, there is a civilization there. Our first impulse would be to figure out how do we send a probe there? How do we send something there to go take a look at it? The second question I would think we would ask is, if we're seeing them, have they already seen us? How long have they been seeing us? And have they sent someone to check out? Have they sent a probe to us already? Just because we're just now finding them. And I think this is a point I make to people all the time. And I think this is an important point to make. I don't, if there had never been one UFO sighting in the history of the world, if it just didn't exist, it was something we never talked about. It just wasn't a subject ever. The idea of extraterrestrial, all of that it would still be the materialist scientist point of view that there should be life throughout the cosmos, that much of that life should be more advanced than us just based on the fact that the cosmos is 14 billion years older, just shy of it, and our planet's only been here for the last 4 billion and change. So just based on time and space and the fact that the cosmos is made of ordinary stuff. It's not supernatural in any way. Other planets are made out of the same carbon that we're made out of and the same oxygen. We see water around planets. We see water around stars. We see all the same stuff. So if there are a thousand yards in your neighborhood and yours has grass and every other yard has the same sort of dirt, the same sort of whatever to it, chances are most of those yards have grass. That's just... a uh, a materialistic scientist point of view. So scientists have avoided the UFO topic for so long because it's connected to visitations and crop circles and abductions. And, and again, like supernatural, maybe it's paranormal, or maybe they're coming from the future, or maybe they're from another dimension. And that has chased scientists away from that. But if you ask scientists what their position was about, are, is there life on other planets? Almost universally now, scientists say life should be common throughout the cosmos. It's the it's it's more or less a universally accepted thing. If you ask scientists, and they all fall back on the I just don't think it's visited us yet, or I don't think it's come here. To which I often say, so you're willing to believe in science, you're willing to believe that if matter is ordinary and the if the cosmos is not supernatural, but is a natural phenomenon. And the materialist interpretation is that there should just be life everywhere and a lot of it should have come before us based on the age of the cosmos. Then you're telling me that you don't believe in evolution because evolution is a reaction to natural forces. So on other planets, if there's evolution, guess what? You're going to end up with technologically modern uh, beings. They may not be humans per se, but you're going to end up with, with creatures that can use technology that can travel into space, that can do the things that we're doing, and probably did that a long time before us. So I think we're going to reach a point where 
scientists are going to find signs of microscopic life in, in Mars or the gases of Jupiter. We may find more complex life in the oceans of Europa and uh, uh, Io and some of these other locations. I think we will find biosignatures in the atmospheres of exoplanets, planets around other stars. And this idea that life is everywhere, that life is natural, not supernatural, that there's only only intelligent creatures on Earth. You know, it's almost this, you look at scientists and you go, you know, in the old days, they would laugh at this, the Earth is the center of the universe and God makes all the decisions and humans are at the top of the pyramid. And we find out, well, humans are just animals like every other animal. Used to say when you ascribed emotions to an animal that you were anthropomorphizing it. As it turns out, all animals have emotions. Oh, they all have personalities, just like us. We're just one of the animals. We're not that spectacular. We're just a little bit smarter and more ingenious than the other ones. So we can build stuff and shoot stuff and fly in the sky. So this idea that scientists are coming around to, not only should the ET hypothesis be a valid one, just in the sense that it's just the way the nature should be. It's just there should be life everywhere. It should evolve. There should be technological species. And I can tell you a lot of scientists think this way already. That resistance was so strong at the dawn of the UFO phenomenon because we hadn't even been to space. We didn't know if you could fly in space in the 40s. We hadn't been to the moon. We didn't had never imaged another planet. I had a professor, I think I've told you this before, but... I started UCLA in 1987, and I had an astronomy professor who told me he would bet his retirement that we will never find a planet around another star. Because at that point, we had scientists were sure there's not going to, well, guess what? They're not going to find planets around other stars. We found them. We're not going to find rocky ones. We found them. They're not going to be Earth size. We found them. They're not going to have water. We found them. They're not going to be in the habitable zone. We found them. The next thing to find is life. And I think. It will not only be, it will be huge for us because we're waking up to that knowledge. But cosmically, I don't think it's a big deal at all. I just think life is everywhere. And I tell people all the time, if there had never been a UFO ever reported, I still think aliens are watching us because I think they've been around longer than we have. And I think there's civilizations on planets that were within 100 light years, 200 light years or less that have the ability to observe us that evolved to the point that they're either technological civilizations, meaning they're AIs, or they're super biological uh, civilizations, meaning they can live to 2,000 years, 3,000 years old. And Andy, if you and I can live to 2,000 years, suddenly a ship that goes half the speed of light that's got to go to a star 20 light years away, it's going to take 40 years. That's not that long of a scientific mission, right? Like, When we sent the first Mars rovers up, the more recently in the 90s, I remember watching those go. I remember watching them land, doing their whole mission, spirit and opportunity, going through that whole process. So I know I'm going in a lot of directions here, but this is where I think we're at. I think we are at the point where the conventional wisdom for science should be and is becoming that ET life exists advanced et life probably exists and the last hurdle for them to admit is uh, as i said well i just don't think they've come to visit us because if they say that then they have to get into the ufo conversation and they don't want to get into the ufo conversation because of crop circles abductions 
supernatural thinking and the things that go with that. They still want to feel like I'm a credible scientist and I need evidence and this is the way I look at things. But when it comes to the philosophy of life, NASA has astrobiologists now. They didn't have astrobiologists. There's people employed by NASA whose job it is to study something we haven't even found yet, to study life on another planet, whether it's microscopic organisms or complex life. Those jobs exist because it's just something we know we're going to find. The same way when they were searching for the Higgs boson at the CERN Collider. It was just something we knew we were going to find because it had to exist, because of the way science works, because of the way physics works. So I think the way physics and chemistry and those things work, life is going to be across the cosmos, across billions of worlds, and we're going to see it at all levels of development, from societies that have completely gone extinct billions of years ago to societies that planets that are just like we were three, four, five hundred thousand years after our formation, where those first little uh, microscopic cells were starting to create amino acids and go from inert objects into life. So I think that's that's the path we're on just because we're so much more modern than we were when the UFO phenomenon happened. So that that that's my my long short version there on that subject. I'd like to thank Blendjet for sponsoring this episode. You know I am already a huge fan of the Blendjet too. It's a brilliant bit of kit and many of you have picked one up using my promo code, so thanks. I am delighted to let you know it's just got even better. The new Orbiter drinking lid truly puts the Blendjet 2 into the atmosphere ahead of its competition. It's leak-proof, has a larger opening for thick smoothies with room for a straw, and it's engineered to keep spills at bay. I'm surprised Bob Lazar didn't talk about seeing this tech in the halls at S4. It's easy to use, so it can be operated one-handed, ideal for walking around, camping under the stars, or drinking on the treadmill. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. Don't forget to add the Orbiter lid, and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Do you know, uh, in the week that Jerry Springer's passed away, that would have been a wonderful final thought to wrap up on, Chris. And you explained it eloquently and the science behind it and all the magical ways we could discover ET life out there was so well put. You did miss one. You missed one really obvious one, though. And I think when we start spending sending space tourists like Kanye West up with an iPhone 14, I hope Kanye out his window just takes that picture. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, that's for me is so many opportunities and we've got so much great technology like the James Webb, like Elon Musk pushing it with SpaceX is whatever people think of him, you know, putting more and more stuff into space. He's he seems to have pushed NASA a little bit more as well into the no conversation. Doubt. And I wonder without an Elon Musk and his kind of dickhead attitude, you know, would NASA even be pushing the way they are missions on Mars? We'd still be flying in Russian capsules to the space station. The Boeing capsule still isn't done. The one that was supposed to be done like a decade ago still isn't done. The fact that SpaceX jumped in the race, did it for half the price, got it done 10 years earlier, and now our astronauts go back and forth to the space station on the SpaceX capsule as opposed to a Russian capsule that we got to pay 10 times as much to fly up on because we're essentially subsidizing 
their space program, forget about it. I, I have a lot of frustration with Elon Musk when it comes to talking about world population and economics and stuff, because he's a wealthy people that wants people to constantly wants society to grow because it uh, risks the economy when society shrink. And there are Japan and there are good cases for that. But uh, as far as his accomplishments in space, they're unequaled in my lifetime. Well, Chris, is there anything else you're working on at the minute that you want to talk about? Uh, nothing that I can share that I overly want to tease. I will tell you one thing I would always like to tell people when talking about this subject. And the last thought I would give you is I'm not against time travelers from the past, just time travelers from the future, because traveling from the past is from a scientific standpoint is very simple. If I, uh, got in a rocket ship and I wanted to go to a thousand years in the future right now. I just cruise up to about 90, 99% the speed of light. And I hold it for a couple of years. And when I land, because of uh, Einsteinian relativity, a thousand years or 500 years, whatever the, the, the speed I went and the amount of time I went would have passed on Earth. So I tell people all the time, if there was an advanced civilization a million years ago, a hundred million years ago, a billion years ago on our planet, on another planet, whatever, the idea that they would send uh, explorers into the future simply by going really fast is is very fundamentally and scientifically sound, and it's a proven principle. We've proven that relativity. They've put clocks on an airplane and put one on the ground, sent them to the same town, and the one at the airplane was a little bit behind because the clock didn't move as, as fast because it was on the airplane. So time on the ground moved fast. That is a proven, basic, fundamental physics uh, phenomenon. So... Uh, I am open to, because I get a lot of questions about time travel. It's probably the most common email question I get about, because I'm such a pro-ET hypothesis guy. And I just say, you know, uh, I don't mind the idea of transdimensional beings and from other dimensions. It's just nothing that we don't know if other dimensions exist. That's mm-hmm. something within supersymmetry and, and M-theory. And M-theory and, and string theory, they fail a lot of tests in the lab a lot. So there's not a lot of good backing for them. And time travel from the future to the past, again, there's not really a lot supporting that other than maybe in the quantum realm. There's a little bit of backwards time travel. I've written about that. But yeah, I think a forwards time travel uh, is uh, not only uh, valid, it's real. And it's something that we'll probably do at some point. You know, there will probably be a point in the future where humans are able to go fast enough that the idea of, hey, do we want to send an astronaut or astronauts into the future by sending them in a really fast arc for a year and coming back to Earth 500 years from now? And uh, so it's, you know, if we have visitors that are non-human, that people say, oh, well, I'm not sure if they're from another planet or another time or another dimension, they could just be from the past. I've always said that also helps explain multi-generational abductions. When people say, why would a family, 100 years or 150 years of family lineage, be so interesting to another species or an advanced species? If for them that 150 years was 10 minutes, that they were dropping into Chris's father and Chris's father's father and then Chris, and then, you know, I hope not, but your kids and and down the line, for them that could just be a small amount of time. But for us, it's hundreds of years. Absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I completely agree. And I, I do think um, I'm not a I'm not a big believer in the abduction phenomenon just because of, you know, 
there have been too many Travis Waltons and too many fake cases that have come along that, you know, showed nefarious intent. Uh, I, I had a science fiction writer, a fellow science fiction writer, tell me years ago that uh, if he didn't sell a novel, he was going to do a Whitley Stryber, right? Which was Whitley was a science fiction writer who didn't sell that well. And, uh, and so he said, hey, you know, uh, what if I write a real science fiction choice? That's my take on him. But doesn't mean that's true or false. That's just my take on it. But It's all opinion, which is totally fair. You're allowed your opinion. Don't worry about that. Yeah, and, and again, that's what's the, where we're still at. You know, as I think Mick West said about my story yesterday, it still lives in the low information zone. And as much as I don't like when people write snarky comments or derisive comments, and I commented about that on Twitter, because I do think we're just people trying to understand something here. And I think that's the, the value these scientists I'm working with are trying to bring to this. And the, yeah, so the one thing I'll leave people with is uh, we're in interesting times, uh, you know, Andy, with the, there's a lot of talk. I get this behind the scenes too, and you know the people I work at the, with at the debrief. There's a lot of talk of whistleblowers lately. There's a lot of talk of crash retrievals, of reverse engineering, of, uh, I think Ross Coulter calls it the program. Um, and I think we're at a point where something very interesting is going to break with that. And it's either going to be, we're going to get the list of these whistleblower witnesses and we're going to roll our eyes and go, it's all hearsay witnesses. It's all people saying, well, I knew a guy who said he worked on the program or I was in a building once and somebody told me behind that door is a saucer. I didn't see it. But, you know, we're either going to find that or we're going to hear what the people are claiming to us and to me and people I talk to behind the scenes that that's not what we're going to hear. That we're going to hear, I worked on it. I had my hands on alien craft. My job was to attempt to reverse engineer. And in the article we wrote about the O'Hare incident, the reason my guys applied physics said they didn't think it was a human-made warp craft. And if it was a warp craft, it would have to be non-human is because science and technology are incremental. So that progress to a full-blown warp drive has a lot of steps along the way. And the handful of people that are working on that science are all people he and his team know. I know a lot of them too, because I've written so many Eric Lance and Sonny White and all these other people in the warp community. But they look at technology and they look at advancement and they say, if it can do this, we didn't build it because we didn't do the steps to, you know, people talk about it all the time. If you found the 747 uh, in the desert 3,000 years ago. Yeah. yeah. The technology to make the seats, the technology to make the little plastic knobs, the technology to make all the gauges, the technology to refine the fuel that it flew. All those incremental technologies that are all working together for that thing to do. So I, I think we're at an interesting time where we may... You know, the bubble is going to burst one way or the other. Either we're going to hear, you guys aren't getting any of it. There's no disclosure, no photos, no videos, all the things that Elizondo and Mellon and all these people have teased, Gary Nolan, that, oh, there's better. Harry Reid, it's all there. He said all those photos and videos all there. Some of that is either going to come out via, and I don't think it's going to be government. I do think it will ultimately be a whistleblower who worked on a craft, if it exists, standing in front of it. That's what we need. We need a photo of an engineer standing in front of a flying saucer going, 
ta-da, and then he says, here's a picture of me 20 years ago when I worked on the craft, and I'm willing to name names, say where I worked, say the names of the other scientists I work with, the people who paid my paycheck and all that. So I think we're at a point where that's going to break one way or the other. And I think the negative people always, ah, we'll never learn anything. And the positive people will say it's a matter of time. I think we don't know, but we are in the most interesting time of the UFO phenomenon. There's no doubt about it. And something's going to break one way or the other. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But everything I'm hearing, something's going to break. I feel like we're within a year of something breaking. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. Hi everyone, Andy here. This is a special announcement for folks who listen to the show via Spotify. You can now support the pod directly through Spotify for less than the price of a coffee each month, giving you ad-free content, no sponsorships, early access and bonus shows as well. So many of you have chosen to support the show through Patreon and Apple Premium and I appreciate this has been a long time coming for Spotify listeners. Just search That UFO Podcast Premium in Spotify or click the link in this description for this announcement. Otherwise, Apple Premium is still available with a two-week free trial as well, again from less than the price of a coffee, or you can sign up for Patreon for the additional benefits that come with those tiers. Again, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and just listens to the shows. Lots of great content to come.